Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 24. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, uh, for those of you that are, uh, as we go through the passage today, for those of you that are maybe the first time here, you weren't here last week when we began our series called Endgame, or maybe you're just new to church altogether. You're like, hey man, I'm just, I'm new to this whole church thing. Listen, there's going to be some things we talk about today and your head's just going to want to explode, all right? So there's just some things you're like, oh my gosh. But listen, I think at the end of today, you're going to find out that maybe more than any any other message in the series, there's some real practical handles of things that Jesus is going to give his disciples that are handles for you and I today. So I want you to stay with me as we go through this. And so last week we began this series called Endgame. And I said this, as we get into Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, it's the discourse where Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the end of the world, that when things are coming to an end. Now, when you start studying that stuff, some of you like geek out on that. Like you love that and you've read the books and you've watched the Tim LaHaye movies and you just wish you'd make more movies. And, and so you're just like, you're loving it. Some of you are like, ah, it's just all going to pan out in the end, right? So listen, here's my goal as we continue through this series. And I said it last week, here's the first one, is that we would gain some kind of literacy on the topic of end times. Here's why. One third of your Bible, one third is apocalyptic in nature, meaning it is referencing to the end of the world. One third of scripture is that. So we need to have some literacy on it. The second thing I want us to do is make sure that we're able to discover what is manageable in the mysterious. So when you study the end time stuff, here's one thing we all agree on. None of us know what's going to happen because it's not happened yet. Right? So there's some mysterious things that go on. And what I don't want us to do is to speculate. Don't fall into the trap of, well, I think, I feel, I hope. No, no, no. What is manageable means what does scripture clearly tell us? That's manageable. And what is mysterious? Let's do something really spiritual. You ready? Let's just trust God with that. Amen? Because we don't know everything. And the third thing is this as we go through this journey, I want us to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus like we've never seen it before. Because guess what? One day, he's coming again. Amen? And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that moment. I can't wait to see him and to be like him and to spend all eternity with him. And so last week we said that's the journey we're going to be on. Now, last week we began in early Matthew 24, and we talked about several things. Jesus began talking to his disciples, and he told them, here are some signs. Here are six things that are going to happen that you're going to see happen, and it's going to be being pushing toward the end. Now, he, he used the word you there, which is typically a personal pronoun that we think of he's talking to the disciples. But that was not a reference to the disciples. It was a reference to those that were going to be alive during the end times. So you was a reference to all believers, that believers, when the end time comes, they're going to see these six signs. And all six of these signs are kind of markers to say that the end is coming soon. So he talked about stuff like deception. He talked about disputes like wars and rumors of wars. He talked about um, uh, disasters, natural disasters that happen. He talked about persecution. He talked about apostasy, those that claim to be believers but walk away from the faith. And then he talked about a worldwide proclamation. He said, listen, these six things are going to happen before the end. And so today we're going to talk about the last part of chapter 24, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so you're going to have to listen super fast today, all right? So 15 through 51, got a lot of ground, but it's so important because in these verses, Jesus is now talking about the great tribulation. So last week was the signs the end was coming, and today things he's going to talk about occurred during the great tribulation. And some of you are like, okay, what in the world do you mean by that? So as you're turning to Matthew 24, let me show you a timeline because I like charts. Anybody else like charts? Great, the rest of you need to get together. All right, here we go. So, 
So now this is, you're going to say, oh, he's that guy. Listen, there are two primary, what I believe, conservative schools of thought. There's a lot of schools of thought. But when I think, when I say conservative, I mean people that are most consistent with, I believe, the Bible teaches. Very little speculation. One of those is what we call pre-tribulation rapture, and we'll get into that for a minute, meaning the rapture at some point, we're in the church age, at some point, Jesus comes and calls the saints home with him. Okay? And then there's a seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that, Jesus comes again. That is the second coming of Christ. And then we have a thousand-year reign with him. So that's about as far as we're going to get. And some of you go, well, I don't know that I agree with this. Well, that's okay. Some people, the second school of thought is that, okay, we're in the church age, and then the seven years of tribulation happen, and then the second coming of Christ and the rapture are a simultaneous event. They say, no, 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 there's not. When you read the Bible, when you read 1 Thessalonians, and you read Revelation, no, no, it's, it's, not a, it's not two events, it's a simultaneous event. And here's what I want to say today. This is where I land. I believe the Bible is most consistently read. When you read Daniel, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and you read Revelation, and you read the Gospels, I really believe that in context, this is the, the way that it will lay out. But at the end of the day, if it happens at the end, I don't really care. One thing I know is that one day I'm going to be with him. And how about you, right? Isn't that goodness? But what I'm saying, why I have a chart today is because I want to talk about the tribulation period, seven years. Now, most scholars would tell you the passage we covered last week really coincides the first three and a half years coincide with what we read last week with Revelation chapter 6. You can go read that later. But the idea of persecution, of apostasy, of disputes, of deception, all that really coincide with what happens in the first three and a half years. And then right in the middle of the three and a half year mark, there's an event that happens. We'll read about it in a minute. There's an event that happens. And after that event, we enter into what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. If you're with me so far, I say I'm with you. Okay, I'm asking you to agree with the timeline. All I really want you to know is the Bible teaches there's a seven-year window. Now, the passage we covered last week really fits in line with the first three and a half years. You can read more details about that in Revelation chapter 6. But then when you get to this last three and a half years, there's an event that happens right in the middle that, can, that propels us into the last three and a half years of what's called the Great Tribulation. You say, Doug, what is the Great Tribulation? Then I go and steal a thunder. It's this. It's the unbelievable and unimaginable wrath of God poured out on this world. That's exciting, isn't it? Right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm pre-trib rapture now, right? You're like, I, I want to go quick, right? So I don't want to be part of this. So, and, and I said that because I want you as we read this, and later I'll give you some references. You can read in the book of Revelation. And if you have any questions, you can call Elijah about them. But anyway, the, the thing is that, that, that there's going to be a moment in this great tribulation that when this event happens after that, there's going to be an unimaginable, unbelievable wrath of God that's poured out on this unbelieving and rejecting world. And when I say unbelievable, unimaginable, just read it in Revelation. So here we go. Matthew chapter 24. The first thing I want us to notice as we look is the signaling of this great tribulation. Meaning, what is the event? The one in the, right in the middle, Doug. What is the event that happens that launches us into the great tribulation period? And if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 21, we're going to read. So when you see the abomination of desolation... Spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, that the readers understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, that the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let no one who is in the field no turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or in Sabbath. 
For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, and no one will ever Will ever, will ever be. Now, here's what he says. What is the signaling event? What is the moment that something happens that shifts us from this tribulation, first three and a half years, to the last three and a half years? And here's the event. And this is going to bring so much clarity to you. You ready? It's the abomination of desolation. Is that clear? It was like, I've never heard that before. Some of you are like, okay, you're speaking a foreign language. No, no, listen. Abomination of desolation is an event. It is the event, the center point at three and a half years that separates the first three years, three and a half years of persecution to the last three and a half years of God unleashing his wrath on this unbelieving, rejecting world. Now, when you think about the abomination of desolation, I want to bring some clarity to it because Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he mentions it three different times, the abomination of desolation. So you say, okay, Doug, what, what is this event? Well, when Jesus told the disciples about this event, it was a past event. It was a past historical event, but it was also going to be a future event that was going to separate between the first three and a half years and the last three and a half years. It's the center point that launches into the wrath of God. So the past event. You know, back in the Old Testament, somewhere between the 400 years between the Old and New Testament, there was 400 years there. And so from really 0 AD to 400 BC, God is silent. God told us this in the book of Amos, that there was going to be a famine, not of food, not of water, but of his presence. There was 400 years, God said, I'm not going to step in and intervene in history because that's how bad people had gotten. Now, during this 400 years, it's called the intertestamental period. We know what goes on during that time. Because those great history books, if you grew up and you studied history at all, you've anybody ever studied Alexander the Great? It's this time period happens. Have you ever studied about the Maccabean Revolt? Happens during this time period. Well, during this time period, there was a king of Syria. He was a bad king. His name was Antiochus IV. And he reigned between 175 BC and 165 BC. In fact, this guy was, according to Jewish historians, he was insane. His nickname was the madman, right? I mean, if you're called the madman, you're probably kind of kooky, right? I mean, this guy was nuts. Now, here's why he was nuts. He hated the Jews. He wanted to do everything he could to annihilate the Jews off the face of the earth. Sounds a lot like who? Hitler, right? He wanted to annihilate them. And so what did he do? He would go out and kill thousands and thousands of Jews. But not only was he crazy because he hated the Jews, he also wanted to position himself as though he was God, so he wanted everybody to believe that he was a God that needed to be worshipped. This guy was crazy. But the event in history that sets him apart, there's a reason we know about him, is the event where he went in and he desecrated the Jewish temple. Now, if you remember from last week, you know, after the, the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, a guy named Nehemiah came back, right? And Nehemiah built the walls of Jerusalem. But also Ezra and Zerubbabel, Ezra and priest came back and they restored the temple. So the temple is functioning during this time. And so this guy, Antiochus IV, he desecrates the temple. And here's how he does it. He goes into the temple where sacrifices are offered and he, offer, he, he, uh, he offers a pig to be sacrificed. Now, many of you don't know a lot about Jewish culture, but you need to know this. A pig was viewed to be unclean. So when you were going to sacrifice something, you were to sacrifice something that was to be clean, without blemish, without spot, something that appeared to be this idea of holy, and I'm going to give it to God, my best, this clean, this unblemished, and God's going to accept that. Well, that's what? A pig, where do pigs live? In slop, right? I mean, maybe that's how your teenager, you describe them. I mean, they live in filth. They live in dirt. I mean, it is nasty. 
And so he brings this nasty pig and he offers it as a sacrifice in the temple, desecrating the temple, but it's not, it gets worse than that. He actually takes the, 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 the pig after he kills it and he forces the religious leaders to eat the flesh of the pig, which now makes them defiled, makes them unclean. And if that wasn't bad enough, before he left the temple, he established a a false image to the god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus, that was to be worshipped in the temple. That event was known as an event that was an abomination that desolated the temple. It desecrated the temple. That's where we get the name abomination of desolation. Are you with me so far? Are you with me? Okay, now, he gets better than that. Now, there's going to be a moment at this three and a half point where this is going to happen. There's a moment in the end times, there's going to be a rise of a guy. You can read in scripture, 1 Thessalonians, even the book of Revelation, there's going to be a rise of the Antichrist. Now, we know the Bible says there's many Antichrists. I mean, there are many people who are anti-Jesus, but there's going to be one who's the Antichrist. He's coming. He's going to reign and rule. However, the thing when he comes, initially when he comes, he's going to come and he's going to make Israel feel like that he is their deliverer. He's going to come to the nation of Israel and he's going to build an alliance with them. But at the three and a half year point, he's going to stand in the temple where Israel worships. Now, many of you are like, hey, they don't have a temple. There's an Islamic mosque. on." I know that. That's why that's mysterious. We don't know. But what we do know is this. He's going to stand in the place where the Jews worship in the temple. And after he's built all this rapport with them, after he's made them feel like he's their deliverer, while he's built this alliance with them, he's going to stand up in that place at the three and a half year mark. And he's going to declare that he is God and that everybody has to worship him. And in that moment, he will desolate the temple. So we will have a second abomination of desolation. Now, if you're with me, say, I'm with you. Because I'm telling you, this is important to know because at this moment, at this event, it's going to launch us into the great tribulation. So at this moment, there is this triggers, this abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist stands in the temple and declares that he is God and everybody's to worship him, it's the same abomination of desolation that Antiochus IV committed way back when. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus tells the disciples how believers who are living that time, how believers are to respond to this signal, how they're to respond to this moment. Look with me in verse 15 and 20 again. It says this. So when you see this abomination of desolation, look verse 16, let those who are in Judea, what are they to do? What are they to do? Look at the screen. What are they to do? They're to flee. Verse 16. Let's go back to verse 16, Thomas. And let those in Judea flee to the mountains. But the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray for your flight may not be in the winter or the Sabbath. Now think about this for a minute. Here's what Jesus is saying. He said, listen, there's going to be a moment, guys, when the Antichrist, he doesn't call him that, but we know from other passages what he's talking about. The Antichrist is going to stand. He's going to commit an abomination of desolation. He's going to stand in the temple, and he's going to declare that he is God, that he is to be worshipped. And that is going to be the trigger that launches us into this last three and a half years, this great tribulation. And here's what he says. Those that are living during that time that are believers, here's what I want you to do. Run. Go to the mountainside. Now, why would Jesus tell those that are believers during that time they're to flee to the mountains? Well, the mountains provided shelter. The mountains provided refuge. The mountains were away from all those people who were ungodly. It was about getting away. 
and getting protected. Now, why would Jesus say during that time when this Antichrist declares that he is God to be worshipped, that they should flee? Are they to flee because he doesn't want them to reign and rule over these believers? No. Why does he want them to flee? Because God the Father is about to unleash his wrath on an unbelieving world, and he wants to protect his elect. That's why they're to flee. Notice what he says there. He's, he says, when you, when you, if you're on the rooftop, don't go down and get anything. If you're in the field and this happens, don't turn back and get your coat. Just go. I mean, with urgency, when you have this moment, when this abomination of desolation happens, I want you to get out and get away and get to cover as quickly and as fast as you come. And then I love what Jesus says. It's almost like in pity for those women who are pregnant or those women that are nursing May this event not occur in the winter or the Sabbath. You know why he says that about women? Because if you're pregnant or if you're nursing, what is that going to do to your fleeing? It's going to slow you down, right? Because when this happens, listen, when this happens, I want my believers to flee. Why? Because God is about to unleash his unbelievable wrath on a broken and a rejecting world. Now, this is pretty intense, isn't it? But that's what's coming. Now, he goes on and he talks about something. He kind of shifts it. He, he begins to talk about different elements that are going to be part of this great tribulation. And if you want to read more details about these elements, Jesus is going to give us three. I'm going to walk through real quickly. But if you want to get the whole scoop, you can go back and read Revelation chapter 8 through 17. It talks about trumpets. It talks about bowls. I mean, it is the wrath of God. And when you read it, you're like, okay, God is reconciling himself. I mean, God is taking the world and holding the world accountable. A world that rejected him, a world that doesn't believe, he is holding them accountable. And so he gives some elements that are going to be part of this great tribulation. And the first one's found in verse 21. He says this, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. And no one will ever be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, here's what he's talking about. First, the first real um, moment of this great tribulation is going to be calamity, meaning persecution. I mean, this unbelievable wrath that's poured out. God is going to pour out his wrath on a rejecting world. Revelation 8 through 17 talks about that. He said, listen, the first thing you're going to see is a great tribulation like you've never seen before. You're going to see calamity and you're going to see wrath like you have never, ever seen before. There's times in our lives where we feel like God is disciplining us. Amen? You ever gone through that? That doesn't even come close to comparing to what God is going to do. God is going to reveal himself not just in grace and mercy. He's now going to reveal himself in his wrath. And it's going to be poured out. And so for those that are alive during this last three and a half years of tribulation that are believers, go to the mountainside. Flee as fast as you can because he's going to unleash it. And he's going to unleash this calamity, this wrath like you've never seen it before. And he says this, that it was preordained that this season would be cut short. I find that interesting. That God in himself, while he's pouring out this wrath, has preordained that this wrath pouring out would be cut short. Now, why would it be cut short? Because he understands that if he really pours out his wrath on all humanity for as long as he wants to, it will lead to utter destruction of everybody and everything. But he says, because of the elect, because those that I love, that love me, I'm going to cut this time short. And this is going to be a calamity and a wrath pouring out, but I'm going to protect the time. I'm going to shorten the time so that my elect are not going to be in trouble or killed through this. Calamity. Great tribulation. Then he talks about another thing. Look with me in verse 23. 
He says this, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For the false Christ and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, so to lead those astray, if possible, even the elect. He says, listen, there's going to come a season, come here. And he goes, look what he says, verse 26. So if you say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, listen, there's going to be great confusion in this great tribulation. Not only is the wrath of God going to be poured out, but they're going to be false teachers and they're going to try to trick people. They're going to try to confuse people. They're going to try to deceive people. And I want you to ignore them. Ignore those deceivers because they're going to try to pull the wool over the world. Now, it's hard for me. Let's just be honest. It's hard for me to back up and go, okay, when I see this stuff happening, it would be hard for me not to immediately go, okay, if I've read this book at all, I'm running to Jesus, Right? I mean, wouldn't you be in the same boat? But there's going to be a deception that happens that we just can't explain. It's mysterious. And there's going to be false teachers and false prophets. They're going to try to lead people astray. And then he gives one more uh, pretty big condition in verse 28, or big element. He said, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a bizarre statement. But here's what Jesus is saying. When the end times come and the wrath is poured out and confusion will happen, the world will be so corrupt the world will be so corrupt, it will look like a dead carcass. Have you ever seen a dead deer on the side of the road that nobody chose to take off the road for a while and eventually began to decay and it was this lifeless carcass? You know what I'm talking about? Everybody with me? You still with me? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He said, that's what the world's going to look like eventually. It is so corrupt that in this great tribulation, no one's going to see my wrath, no one's going to be confusion, but the corruption's going to be so bad, the world and the people in the world are going to look like a lifeless, dead carcass. It's so far, I'm encouraged, aren't you? But Jesus goes on to something that's important. Look what he does next. He talks about the event after the great tribulation. Look with me in verse 29 through 31. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, at the moment the tribulation's over with, listen, it's going to appear though creation is unraveling. It's going to appear as creation is falling apart. It's going to appear like things are so bad. The world is so corrupt. There's so much confusion. There's so much wrath. You're going to look at the world and the sun's not going to produce light. I mean, the, the sun, things are going to fall. You're going to look and go, man, the world and the universe, everything is collapsing. Then verse 30. Then, everybody say then. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the, come, the Son of Man on the clouds in the heaven and the power and great glory. And he will send out angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven. Here's what he says. Listen, there's going to come a moment that all creation is going to seem like it's falling apart. It's unraveling. But in that moment, I'm coming again. In that moment, when you think everything is as bad as it could possibly be, you're going to see me on the clouds. I'm coming again. Now listen, and when I come, the tribes and the nations of the world that rejected me, they're going to mourn, he says. They're going to mourn the rebellion. And then my angels, guess what they're going to do? They're going to gather all my elect from eternity, I mean, from all the way to the beginning of time to the present time. They're going to grab the saints of the old, and they're going to just gather all the elect from all time, and we're going to be together. 
Now, why would Jesus end this session with his disciples on this topic? It's because he wanted them to know something I want you to hear me say. Please don't get wrapped up in a timeline. Please don't get wrapped up in all the things that Jesus is pointing out. Don't get wrapped up in the, the abomination of desolation. Don't get wrapped up in the great tribulation. Don't get wrapped up in the elements, the calamity and the confusion and the corruption. Here's what you need to get wrapped up in. Every time we look at the world that we live in and we think things are getting worse and worse and worse, which they are, amen? It should remind us that history is going somewhere. That history is going to the point where Jesus is going to split the skies and he's coming again. That every time we look at the world and see how bad things are, everything is moving to a point in history where Jesus is going to come again. And so he told the disciples this, not to have them depressed or to beat them down, but to remind them that one day, while he was about to leave them, one day he is coming again. And what a glorious moment that was going to be. Man, this is awesome stuff. But still not handles, right? That's good information. But where do we go from here? Now, for the next few minutes, I want, to, I want you to look with me. What I believe Jesus did here, he was pointing them to a history that's leading somewhere, but he doesn't stop there. Because if you're the disciples, did this happen during their lifetime? No, we wouldn't be here, right? Wouldn't be here. So I think what Jesus does at that point is he begins to address this question that we have to address as we close today, all right? It's this. So if that's all going to happen, and there's going to be a moment of tribulation and great tribulation and abomination and desolation, and there's going to be wrath, and there's going to be this, and there's going to be that, and then Jesus coming in, here's the question we all have to ask. So how do we live in the meantime? Right? So how do I live right now? I mean, it's good to know that that's kind of coming down the pike, but how, how, how do you want me to live right now, Jesus, in light of all this information? And Jesus gives us three things, and this is what we're going to close with. The first one's found... In verse 36 through 42, he says this. I'm sorry, the first one is found in uh, verse 32 through 35. For the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all things, you know that is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here's what Jesus says, be on watch. The fig tree, when the fig tree produces leaves, it's the sign of a new season. And when you see all these things begin to happen, it's a picture that everything is pushing us to the return of Jesus. And he says, this generation will not pass away. He wasn't talking about the disciples' generation. He's talking about the generation that are alive during the final times of tribulation. That generation will not pass away until he returns. He says, so listen, how do you live in the meantime? You ready? Be on watch. You know, when I study things in the Old Testament, like the Old Testament is beautiful because so many of the cities that, that you hear about, like Jericho, had fortified walls, right? They had walls like 30 and 40, maybe 50 feet tall, all the way around the city. And you think about it, in that day and time, it wasn't a matter of when war is, gonna ha is war going to happen. It was a matter of when war was going to happen. So they would put people in watchtowers all around the perimeter of the city, and their only job was to watch. Their only job was to look out because it wasn't a matter of is war happening? It was going to be a matter of when's it coming? And when they saw it coming, they alerted everyone else. That's what Jesus is saying. Be on watch. I've given you six signs. I've given you an event. I've talked about what's coming. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how you live in the meantime. Be on watch. 
And as you see the world decaying, listen, it's just driving us to the point that one day I'm going to come again. And I want to say something to you. As you watch the news, can we agree that it seems to be one bad story after the next bad story after the next bad story? Can anybody agree with me on that? Some of you are so discouraged, you don't watch the news anymore, right? But listen, many times we would sit back and here would be our response. The world we live in is just getting worse and worse and worse. Yes. Because sin is unraveling creation. Sin is decaying the world that we live in. Sin is wrecking souls. You know, I saw yesterday or a couple days ago, one of the Democratic candidates for president made a statement that if churches were not allow, allowing gay marriage in their church, they would steal and they would take away, they would not steal, they would take away their tax-exempt status. And so I've been watching some friends of mine that are pastors, and they're all up in arms. I look at that and go, we're pushing to an event. No matter what we're going through, no matter what the world says, it's all pushing us somewhere. You know where it's pushing us? To one day, Jesus splits the skies, and he comes again. Church, be on watch. The second thing he says is this. Be alert. Look with me in verse 36. He says this. Now concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For, we, for as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, there were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. He says, listen, I want you to be alert. In fact, in verse 42, he says this, therefore, stay awake. For if you do not know what the day of the Lord is coming. He says, listen, not only do I want you to be on watch, I want you to be alert. Now, does anybody in the room know when Jesus is coming again? No. Now, haven't we had people in history try to tell us when? Remember, I think it was like 1989. Somebody predicted that like on a certain day in 1989, and there were stories. This is before the internet, teeny years, sorry. There were stories out there where people are like selling everything and going to like the middle of a desert just waiting for him to come back. What a level of disappointment that must have been, right? I mean, so everybody's trying to predict this. Everybody, listen, here's what scripture says. Not even Jesus, the son of God, knows when he's coming again. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? He says, only who knows? The father knows. Only the father. And he says, listen, nobody knows the name. I want you to be alert because nobody knows the hour. And then he says something as it was in the days of Noah. Now, this is an important phrase I want you to underline in your Bible because it sets the tone for what he's trying to say here. Because if you were to go back to the days of Noah, God told Noah to build a what? Not a trick question, an ark, right? Did God say, look, Noah, on November the 13th at 7,000 BC, I'm coming again with the flood. Be ready. Did he say that? What did he tell Noah? Build an ark, right? You build an ark. Here's what's coming. It's coming down the pike, Noah. Just build the daggum ark. You build the ark, and when I come, everybody's going to know it. So here's Noah building an ark. I mean, can you imagine the ridicule Noah probably felt as he built this ark? And most, and I believe, and most scholars, conservative scholars agree, that they hadn't even seen rain, that even the dew of the ground produced enough water for vegetation, that maybe they hadn't even seen rain back then. And so Noah's building an ark for an event they'd never seen occur before, and people, I'm sure they were chastised. I mean, he didn't just build a John boat. He built an ark. A massive, massive ark. And by the way, Noah, grab some animals and a whole bunch of them. 
And so if you're, the, if you're the spectators that day, you're just watching all these animals march into the ark, march in the ark, march in the ark. And you're probably thinking, this guy is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I mean, this guy has lost his mind. But can you imagine what they must have thought when the door shut and they felt the first drop? What's that? Did you spit on me? And another drop, and another drop, and then a monsoon. Can you imagine what they must have thought? See, here's what Jesus' point is. Just like in the days of Noah, Noah didn't know when the time was coming. You don't know. But also like in the days of Noah, the time of Noah was filled with ungodliness. The time of Noah, people were deceived into not believing the truth. Just like in the time of Noah, people were insensitive to the things of God. They thought they had more time. And just like in the time of Noah, you're going to go through the same thing. You're going to be in a season of great ungodliness. You're going to be in a season where people are deceived and don't want to believe the truth. You're going to be in that season. But just like Noah, there are going to be those, he says this, that are going to be left and some that are taken. Look with me back in verse 41. I want you to see this because this is an important piece of the puzzle. Verse 40 says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Then two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. Now, all my Christian life, I've heard this preached as the rapture. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. The key is just as it was in the time of Noah. What do we know about Noah? He didn't know when the flood was coming. It was just coming, right? Amen? Do we, amen? Are you with me? Amen. Okay, we don't know when Jesus is coming. We just know he's coming. We know that in the time of Noah, it's loaded with ungodliness. We know the time that we live, it's loaded with what? Ungodliness. But we also know that in the time of Noah, those that were left were those that were rescued. Noah and his family. Those that were taken and swept away into the flood, those are the ones that were destroyed. In other words, there's coming a time when those that are redeemed, those that are elect, are going to be rescued and left. And there are going to be those that are not, that are going to be swept away and cast into the lake of fire just like it was in the time of Noah. Here's his point. Ready? Stay alert. You don't know when I'm coming. Live urgently. Love deeply. And don't be lazy. Live urgently. Love deeply. And don't be lazy. Let's say it together. You ready? Live urgently. Love deeply. And don't be lazy. That was his message to the disciples. And there's one more as we close. And it's this. He says, not only be on watch or be alert, last of all, believers must be ready. Verse 43 through 51 says this. But know this, that if the master of the house had known, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant whom his master has set over the household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come on that day that he does not expect him, and that hour he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what Jesus says. I want you to be on watch. I want you to be alert. But believers, I want you to be ready. Now, he talks about two kinds of slaves, servants or slaves. The really word translates are slaves. There's one kind of slave that has been exposed to the truth, 
They've been given, they've been exposed to something by the master. They've embraced it. And not only they embrace it, they've been sharing it and being found faithful to share it. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the gospel. There are those that are going to hear the gospel. Have we all heard the gospel? We sure have. And you're going to, those that, that hear the gospel, that embrace the gospel, and they are urgent to share the gospel. They are urgent to do something with the gospel. And when he comes back, as those that have embraced the gospel and are living urgently to share that gospel, he is going to find us faithful, and we will receive great reward in heaven. But there are those, like the wicked slave, who have heard the gospel, but they have this mentality. I have time later. To embrace it. And they squander their time until it's what? Too late. And then they will spend eternity separated from him. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning. Are you ready? Now I don't want you to go, Woo, I'm ready. No, 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 no. Are you really ready? First of all, are you ready knowing that you have embraced the truth of the gospel, that you are a sinner, that you were dead in your sins, and that you needed Jesus to give you life and to forgive you? Do you are you ready? And are you ready as a believer knowing that you're taking the gospel that you received that has saved you and changed you and given you hope of heaven? And are you being faithful to go out and to share that gospel with other people? Are you ready? Are you ready? See, here's my prayer for us today. First of all, that we would stay on watch. That as we watch the news, as we see the world we live in, don't get so wrapped up in the, 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 the wickedness. So listen, we live in a wicked world. We live in a broken, fallen, wicked world. But there's only one answer, and the answer is the same as it's been since the beginning. It is Jesus. He's the only answer. So as the more I see the wickedness, the more I know this, I'm going to stay on watch. Why? Because all this is pushing to an event. What's the event? Jesus coming again. Second of all, I'll pray for that we would stay alert, that we would live with urgency. That's why the 261 challenge matters to me. That's why I'm sending those of you that did it. I'm praying over you every day, and I send you an email at least once a week on, you know, are you getting after it? Are you going after those two people? Why? Because one day they may be the person that's heard the gospel and says, you know, I've got more time. And you're there to tell them you don't have more time. You don't know the day. You don't know the hour. You don't know if you're going to make it to lunch this afternoon. Death may come in any You don't know. So live urgently. Love deeply. And don't be lazy. But also pray this, is that we would be ready. See, here's what, you know, I, I was... Uh, that the, the men's conference this last couple of days, there was a tombstone on one of them. And they said, what would you want to write like a eulogy? What would you want on the tombstone about you? And it was so easy for me because I've already thought about this. And I was kind of morbid, but I've already thought about it. You know what I want to be said on my tombstone? That there, here lies, or however you want to put it, I don't care. You, you all can write it for me. I don't really care, but I want this on there somehow. You ready? That here lies, the distinguished, no, I mean, here lies a man who's a faithful follower of Jesus Husband, dad, and pastor. I want people to know me. I want when Jesus comes again or I go to meet him, I want to be known as someone who is faithful. Faithful to my Lord, faithful to share this gospel, and faithful to do all that he's called me to. I want to be found faithful. So I pray that we're ready that we are faithful to share the gospel. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, how will he find you? See, when he finds you, it's too late, right? If you slip off in this world not knowing him, it's too late. 
If you have to wait till he returns, you don't know him, it's too late. You know who I hope he finds you today? Is it a place where you realize that you need him, that you're going to surrender your life to him, that for the first time you would say, yes, I want Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Church, my prayer is that we would be ready. So here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye to be closed. Every head bowed, every eye to be closed. And if you're a believer today in the room, I just want you to ask yourself this question. If Jesus were to come back right now, how would he find me? Obviously, he would find me as someone who's given my life to him. That's why I'm a believer. But how would he really find me? Would he find me faithfully sharing the good news that I've embraced? Is that how he would find me? Would he find me taking this challenge to go after two people for six weeks for one purpose? Would he find me doing that with everything in me? Or would he find me not living urgently, but living lazily? If you're a believer in the room and you just say, man, I, I'm not ready in that way, this altar is open for you in just a moment. Or maybe you just need to sit there and do business with God. Say, man, God, help me be ready. Stir that urgency within me. But if you're here today and you say, you know what, Doug? If Jesus came back today, I don't know 100% that he would welcome me into his heaven. I don't know if I'm ready for that. If that's you and you say, you know what, but Doug, I want to be ready. Nobody's looking around. I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up and right back down. I'm not going to call you out. If that's you, if you're not ready, but you want to be ready, just put it up and right back down. Amen. Put it up and right back down. Amen. Amen. Now listen, for those of you that just slipped your hand up, don't, don't even look at me. Just look. I saw you. I saw you. If you really meant that, here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. And it's, not, it's my words, but it's got to be your heart's cry. Would you just say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm not ready. I'm not 100% sure that if you came in this moment that I would come to heaven with you. But I want to be ready. And I acknowledge today that I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've said things and done things and thought things that violated your word and violated you. But today I ask you to forgive me my sin, to come into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior. I surrender to you today. And if you prayed that prayer, he just invaded your life. The Holy Spirit came in and heaven's throwing a big old party just for you. And if you made that decision, I'm gonna be on the front row, love to talk to you. Or you can grab your connection card and say, Doug, today, put your name on the back, say, today I gave my life to Christ. I wanna celebrate with you. More important than anything before I pray is this, that everyone in this room, whether you are not a believer or you are a believer, let's make sure that we are ready. Let's all stand together as I pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you. I know this passage is so thick. It was lengthy. It's hard to digest. God, I get it. But despite the, the knowledge we've learned historically and biblically, God, at the end of the day, I love where Jesus just looks into the heart of his disciples and says, listen, guys, I know you're thinking about all this stuff, but here's what I want you to hear me say. I want you to be on watch. The world is going to keep getting bad, but it's pointing us somewhere. It's pointing us that I'm coming again to set all things straight. Be alert. You don't know when I'm coming. So live urgently, love deeply, and don't be lazy. And be ready. Be at my Father's work. 
share the gospel. And if you don't know me, trust me. Lord, I thank you for the words of Jesus. I thank you that he gave us these handles to grab on this difficult topic about the end that all we need to do for right now, in the meantime, is we need to be on watch. We need to be alert. And we need to be ready. God, would you bless this time? For those that prayed that a moment ago, would you give them the courage to step down front and maybe talk to me or maybe write it on the card they gave their life to you, Lord? Would you give them the courage to do that? Your word tells us, Lord Jesus, that you said that if we will acknowledge you before men, you will acknowledge us before your Father, but if we deny you, you will deny us. God, we've got to declare to the world that we know you, so give them the courage to do that. And God, I pray for believers today that we would ask ourselves our question, are we really ready and if not may we live urgently love deeply and not get lazy God we give this time to you God if if hearts are stirred this altar will be open to them Lord may you work in us only as you can for it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray and everybody said amen amen listen this altar is open if you need to come if you're man I need to be ready here it is If you need Christ, I'm right there. I'd love to share with you. Church, we've got to be ready. We've got to be found faithful. And so as we sing this song today, this song is all about, Lord, in the meantime. In the meantime, how I live. In the meantime, how I'll wait. In the meantime, how I long one day to see you. But in the present, I'm going to be ready. In the present, I'm going to live urgently, love deeply, and not get lazy. So however the Lord leads you, Would you be faithful to respond?